This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 13th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. When Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education President Greg Lukianoff confidently predicted things were getting better with respect to freedom of speech on college campuses, it was 2012, and he was very wrong. We spoke today about where campus speech has gone in just a few years. You wrote a book several years ago called Unlearning Liberty. And uh, it's now five years since that book came out, and it seems like things have gotten much, much, much worse since you wrote that. So I've been with FIRE since 2001, when we were only about a year and a half old. Um, And I've learned the hard way that if you – as soon as you're inclined to say that the situation for free speech and due process and academic freedom on campus is getting better – it's probably just about to get much worse. Uh, I thought this in around 2006, and then 2007 was the worst year I'd ever seen. And I thought this when my first book on learning liberty came out in 2012, uh, that things were actually improving. I even added a chapter kind of at the last minute uh, called um, uh, Don't Object to Authority, basically listen to authority, because we were reverting to cases that were pretty much standard, don't you dare criticize this school, which in some ways it might not sound like progress, but it's such a typical sort of classic kind of censorship. It was like, okay, we're moving a little bit further away from ideological censorship and more to the kind of things you could expect to see in any corporation, for example. And that was 2012. So in 2012, it felt like things were getting at least a little bit better. And then 2013, 2014 came along and things got a lot worse. And what got a lot worse, which was heartbreaking for those of us at FIRE who really enjoyed defending students, was that the students themselves uh, started demanding people be disinvited, sometimes from commencement speeches, a lot of times not if they were just coming to campus, they they wanted them disinvited, Um, that students were demanding new speech codes. um, And it just – it seems to be getting slightly worse or actually a lot worse each year since then. Uh, There was a new survey uh, that was just produced by Yale's William F. Buckley Jr. program, a survey by McLaughlin and Associates, and it says that Uh, They say this is from David French at National Review. He (laughs) writes, first, the good news, students claim to love free speech and intellectual diversity. 83% agree that First Amendment needs to be followed and respected. 84% agree that their school should always do its best to promote intellectual diversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that I, I think um, a very bright person who will remain unnamed um, many years ago sent me um, polling data. Well, students, if they're asked if they like free speech or the First Amendment, they, they, uh, they to a large degree, they say yes. And I'm like, yes. To a large degree, they say yes in Saudi Arabia. To a large degree, they say yes in, uh, in Afghanistan. It's actually kind of surprising, even in dictatorships, um, it, it feels like the right thing to say, I like free speech. But when you get down into the details of what they consider free speech to be, um, sometimes it can be very constrained. And in a lot of cases, what they they think uh, students today don't think that free speech um, includes uh, things that are quote unquote offensive or things that they would deem hate speech, which is often what they deem to be hate speech can actually be pretty expansive. How much is this tied to uh, schools though? It seems like that the the everyone wants to say they like free speech, but there are you know whole swaths of people who are consider themselves strong Republicans, strong Democrats who, depending on their, uh, ideological bent will say, yeah, but you shouldn't criticize cops. Right. You should uh, – I believe the, the, the recent Cato survey found that more than half of Republicans and almost half of Latinos said that somebody's citizenship should be stripped 
if they burn an American flag. Is the citizenship stripped if they do that? Wow. OK. Well, not a surprise to First Amendment people. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm actually particularly um, apocalyptic about this, I, I always try to remind people, freedom of speech is rare in human history, very rare. Um, it's counterintuitive in the sense that it, you know, Jonathan Rauch points out really well that um, prior to you know the, the establishment of liberal science, you know, which he think which he thinks was basically an intellectual development of the basically the Enlightenment, um, the default was whoever is in charge gets to decide what's true, and you're more likely to listen to people in your tribe or your family um, than you are to some you know expert who from some other uh, locale. Um, freedom of speech is not does not come easily to people. Um, we then the reason why people think it's intuitive is because everybody seems to get well. I surely deserve freedom of speech. I'm not totally totally clear on the fact that you deserve it. So since it is so fragile um, and understanding its fragility, it's one of the reasons why um, people like me and other First Amendment advocates are so adamant about it because I don't think we're explaining it very well at the moment. And particularly in the U.S., there's sort of the circular kind of explanation that free speech is good because the first First Amendment protects it. And it's like, no, no, that's, that's, that doesn't get you anywhere. Everybody seems to have their, I, I love free speech, but. Now, but what the, the change that actually has me disturbed, though, is that it's normal in First Amendment law to deal with someone saying, I love free speech, but I hate this one kind of speech. I can, you know, I can live with that. That's human nature to a degree. Um, I obviously don't want that to be the law, uh, but I can live with people having their, you know, inconsistencies. Uh, what scares me is I feel uh, like in just in the past couple of years when I'm on campus, even just the principle of freedom of speech um, gets dismissed as being, um, you know, like like what happened at William and Mary when uh, this was just last week. Students um, uh, shut down an event by the ACLU of Virginia um, that was actually there to give advice on how to protest um, and, and about supporting protesters' rights. So it was really ironic that they came in and shouted down an ACLU speaker. But one of the things they were saying was liberalism is white supremacy, all of, all of this kind of stuff. And it really was a, a – um, the, the ACLU defends Hitler. Basically, it really was an attack on free speech uh, not only as a uh, – in practice, but free speech in principle. In fairness, though, to those protesters, they already know how to protest. <laughs> and why, why should we extend that uh, franchise to other people? You know, I, 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 I would not totally agree there. Partially, it's something that we have, we, we have to explain over and over again because it, it's funny because, you know, you'll run into students who um, are like, well, it's just an extreme form of speech. And it's like <laughs> – and particularly when, when you talk about the Milo riots, it's like, no, no, violence is not an extreme form of speech. Violence is the antithesis of speech. Freedom of speech is about uh, the peaceful resolution of conflicts without resort to physical violence. And also when you shout down a, a speaker, you're completely um, un undoing the point of having a speaker in the first place. You're making the decision for everybody else in the audience that you should not be allowed to hear this. What of, but what of this uh, movement? I don't know if it's a movement really, but it seems to be a – an old wives' tale that continues. Which one? Uh, and it is the idea that hate speech is not free speech, and you see people who are very notable yeah. making that statement, and it's either they don't understand it mm -hmm. or 
any defense that they would provide on behalf of free speech is really just a defensive crouch. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's been a really bizarre year. Chris Cuomo on CNN, you know, said, "Well, we all know that hate speech is not protected by the First Amendment." And of course, you know, you have actual experts on Twitter being like, "No, you you I know you went to law school, but you must have missed this lesson." And then there was Howard Dean, you know, who uh, on Twitter was saying, "Well, hate speech isn't protected," and then decided to come out and and remind a bunch of First Amendment lawyers, many of us who actually teach First Amendment law, uh, you haven't heard of this uh, the case from the 1940s, Chaplinsky, and everybody's like, "Of course." we've heard of Chaplinsky. Um, and he was using it as saying Chaplinsky was a case that said that uh, hateful speech can be banned. And we're all like, no, Chaplinsky is a case that said uh, you can be arrested for calling a cop a fascist. Um, like the idea that people are actually embracing this case, which by the way is not, I don't even think the fighting words exception, which is the exception that came out of Chaplinsky, is still even good law. It's completely incompatible with the current, with the last, I'd say, uh, you know, four decades of First Amendment law. But it was really bizarre to have an argument um, with someone who was really saying it very definitively uh, when he won't even listen to people who you know study this stuff for a living saying you really shouldn't be getting behind something that um, uh, limited someone's ability to criticize people in power. If a young person is compelled to choose between <laughs> not being sufficiently vocal against Nazis uh-huh. or allying themselves with Antifa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that seems like a place nobody wants to be. Well, that, and that's and that's the thing that that, that uh, really has me scared about something really spiraling out of control. Is that if you look at the you know Milo riots and you know whatever your opinion is of Milo, a lot of people actually got hurt during those riots. Um, who many of whom we've actually interviewed and talked to, who were there partially just to see the spectacle itself, and ended up getting you know assaulted in some cases for videotaping it. There was a woman who got hit across the uh, face with a, a flagpole. Her husband hit uh, uh, hit right on the top of the head. These are things that could have you know potentially gotten people killed. And of course you know part of the defense has been. Um, of the of the Milo students somehow um, the Milo writers that they weren't actually students now. This is why Berkeley should have actually done a full and public investigation of it because students were writing in the Daily Cal and in the, in the student newspaper that yes, actually we were. They were trying to take credit for being in, in part of the uh, part of the violent part of the riots. So they were very adamant about uh, about saying that, and uh, just the. It was really strange to watch an entire, you know, um, issue of the Daily Cal be devoted to students talking about uh, what happened on February first as a form of self-defense because uh, Milo's speech was actually violence, and therefore uh, it, we're we're not even engaged in uh, unjustified violence. We're engaged in self-defense, and I'm like, okay, guys, think this through. So you don't like a speaker and you're allowed to assault people who come to that person's speech. Um, then they can claim self-defense in assaulting you back. This turns into something really ugly really quickly, particularly in our hyper-polarized situation we currently have. Yeah, it's always weird to uh, categorize speech as violence in order to justify actual violence. Yeah, and it's, and it's weirdly common um, at the moment. Uh, and I think that the – I'm so much so that me and John Haidt, um, my, my co-author on an article uh, that I did in The Atlantic and in a forthcoming book, we had to write something um, in The Atlantic explaining that <laughs> speech is not violence. Um, and, and it's partially you – know, there was an article in The New York Times claiming that um, uh, psychology showed that uh, some forms of speech are violence. And it's like, no, actually what the, uh, the, site, uh, the study she was citing showed that 
uh, some kinds of speech can be highly stressful. It's a definitional issue of whether or not you call it violence. And as soon as we actually decide to uh, make violence mean also your, your reaction to words, um, we get back to a bad situation, the, the bad old days when free speech was could be limited by the king or the president or wh whomever very, very easily under the smallest pretext. What do you make of the current fight over the silent protest being undertaken at NFL games and the president choosing to weigh in on that uh, to, I assume, shore up his base yeah. and then directing his vice president to, uh, <laughs> I guess, react to something that was widely anticipated, which was a bunch of uh, San Francisco 49ers taking a knee uh, during the national anthem. Yeah, I mean, first thing I have to say here is FIRE is a nonpartisan organization, <laughs> deeply nonpartisan, right down to – so we try to avoid you know, getting too much into presidential politics. But and it's just kind of mind-boggling to us because, yeah, OK, the NFL is a private employer. Um, they don't – they're not bound by the First Amendment. But does any – has anybody ever said that I find my patriotism particularly inspiring when it's forced, when someone's like forced to show something that seems patriotic? Who, who, who actually thinks that's a great thing? And of course, FIRE's, you know, lodestar opinion is the great opinion of West Virginia Board of Education v. Barnett. It's a 1943 opinion um, that Alan Kors, uh, one of the founders of, of FIRE, talks about as being this infinitely patriotic opinion in which we decided uh, – in which the Supreme Court decided that um, public high schools and public grade schools could not force students to salute the flag or stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance. And the principle behind that is like we're not the kind of country that – enforces orthodoxy. So under the principles, under this beautiful pluralistic idea, of course, you know, my sympathies are with people who want to peacefully protest. Greg Lukianoff is president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education and is author of Unlearning Liberty. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.